Podcastle, episode 248, for February 19th, 2013. Bleaker Collegiate presents an all-female production of Waiting for Godot, by Claire Humphrey, rated PG. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Peter Wood, and usually I'm assembling the introduction and other bits of each Podcastle episode into a whole. Well, I'll be doing that with this one as well, but today I get to do the intro too. As some of you know, I'm currently getting my PhD in theater arts at the University of Pittsburgh, and I've been involved with theater in some way, shape, or form since I was about 13. And let's agree to not do the math on how long that is. Cool, thanks. Anyway, so I was really excited when Dave presented me with this story for my first shot at writing and doing an intro segment. So thanks, Dave and Anna, for letting me share a few thoughts about drama. From a certain perspective, drama can be reduced to a simple formula. Bring your characters to the crossroads and necessitate a choice. Sometimes those crossroads are literal, but oftentimes they are metaphorical. What makes drama dramatic is the process of choosing this path or that. Do I kill my king in his sleep, asks Macbeth, or do I uphold the honor of my household? Do I allow my husband to break his promises without punishment, asks Medea, or do I slay his new wife and her father? Do I steal from him everything by killing our own children in order to deny him his future? Do we, ask Didi and Gogo, the two main characters in Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, stay, or do we go? Of course, At the heart of choice, pumping the bright red arterial blood of decision-making is desire. For love, for revenge, for safety, for money, for legacy, for sex, for visibility, sometimes even desire for desire itself. What makes drama drama and not real life is that dramatic characters, for the most part, do choose a direction. They make a choice based on desire and move down one path. Sometimes that path is inexorable and tragic, as in the case of Macbeth or Medea. And sometimes that path is fantastically and comically winding, seeming to go in one direction, then switching back, moving at odd angles, but leading eventually to the fulfillment of love and desire, as in most comedies. Drama helps us see the consequences of particular paths and certain desires, consequences that our ordinary lives often obscure. In real life, we hesitate. We get stuck. We end up at the crossroads of our lives, too afraid to move out of our comfort zone because we might make the wrong choice. Because walking along the road is more frightening than simply waiting, hoping that something will come up and offer us our desire. Our crossroads are our sofas and our easy chairs and our paychecks, our televisions that beckon us to consume rather than to create, our computers that beckon us to click and scan, click and scan, rather than contemplate and think deeply. Every single moment is actually a crossroads moment. The utter terror, yet complete banality of this realization is exactly what Samuel Beckett brought to the stage in ways unlike nearly any other playwright ever. Today's story is Bleaker Collegiate presents an all-female production of Waiting for Godot by Claire Humphrey. Claire writes novels and short stories, mainly about unhappy magicians. She works in the book trade as a buyer for Indigo Books, 
and she is the reviews editor at Idiomancer. In addition to all things literary, she likes boxing, photography, dark coffee, well-hopped beer, and frivolous shoes. This story has been published in both Beyond Binary and Imaginarium 2012. While Beckett truly did block all women productions of Waiting for Godot, and his estate has continued that practice, her only experience in seeing the play live was indeed an all-girl cast at her high school. Her internet presence can be felt at www.clairehumphrey.ca. Our narrator this week is Tatiana Gomberg. When she's not podcasting, Tatiana performs off and off-off-Broadway, as well as regionally and internationally. Her work in The Night of Nosferatu garnered her an NYIT Award nomination for Best Featured Actress, and her portrayal of a drone pilot in Hummingbirds earned her a Best Actress nomination through the Planet Connections Awards. She also played leads in two seasons of classics at Theater 1010 and toured the United States with TheaterWorks USA. You can find out more at www.tatianagomberg.com. So grab your bowler hat and find some comfortable shoes and enjoy the story. Leaker Collegiate presents an all-female production of Waiting for Godot by Claire Humphrey. I staunch the blood with a handful of toilet paper. Red wicks through the white and then the paper wilts and shreds. I toss the mess in the bin. I breathe through my mouth. I lean over the sink and watch my blood splash down and diffuse into the water from the running tap. The door swings in and shoves me against the countertop. Swearing. Ginevra's voice. She stops when she meets my eyes in the mirror. Crap, Deidre, not again. I shrug. You're going to the doctor, right? Ginevra says. Next week. Because that's not normal. I'm not normal, I tell her thickly. On another day, she'd comfort me. She'd walk me to the nurse's office or call my dad to come pick me up. Today, she's already in makeup, all alight with nerves. She smells cigarettes and oxima. Her fingers touch the back of my neck, then skate away. I go on in an hour, she says, brushing past me and into a stall. Break a leg, I say. I hear her jeans unzip, and a moment later the clink of her belt buckle hitting the floor. I turn away, look down. My hand has been fiddling with my ballpoint. Blue scribbles mar the cuff of my jacket. They almost make a word. I don't know what else I'll say to Ginevra if I stay. I leave her and walk out into the rain. One hour until curtain. Two dollars and eighty cents in my jacket pocket, a few cigarettes, pack of gum. Nothing to eat, but I'm not hungry anyway. Rainwater collects on my hair and runs from the lank tips onto my forehead and down to my chin. My jean jacket soaks through and turns stiff. I turn my face up into the downpour. At least it can rinse some of the blood from my skin. Maybe it's the chill, or maybe it's just time, but I think the bleeding is slowing. I start toward the bleaker public library as the rain slackens. 
as I reached the crosswalk at the uppermost limit of my field of view, blackbirds crossed the sky. One and one and one. When I tilt my face back a little to watch them, blood runs down over my upper lip and into my mouth. Making friends with Ginevra was like taming a stray cat. First, I started hanging around in areas where she might be found. If she showed, I didn't approach her. I just stood there, smoking, or I read something, glancing at her secretly from behind my hair. Then, I started catching her eye once in a while. Then I started smiling. Then I started dating Christopher Potter. I dumped him after a few weeks, but that got me introduced to Pete Janicek, which got me the invite to Pete's party, which got me in the same room as Ginevra while she was tipsy and expansive, and then finally it happened. All that was a lie, you know, as if I could plan anything like that. It's only in hindsight that I realize why I started spending time in the smoke hole in the first place. So many of the things we do, we keep from ourselves. She told me the playwright was so much against the idea of his piece being performed by women that when someone in the Netherlands tried it, he banned the entire country from putting on his plays. Why are you doing it then? Aren't you afraid he'll ban Canada too? He's dead. Too bad, it would be great press for us, Ginevra said. She bit off the thread, put away the needle, and showed me what she'd been doing. Adorning my jean jacket with a violent femmes badge. <laughs> I resolved to go out and buy the album as soon as she left. I lock myself in the handicapped bathroom at the Bleecker Public Library, and I kneel under the hand dryer. In the rush of hot air, the last trickles of blood dry to sharp crusts within my nostrils. When I look in the mirror to gingerly prod them out, I see that I'm a strange color, like old newsprint. I always thought pallor would be more attractive. I think I've been imagining pale people as if they were made of marble, delicately veined and smooth. Not this chafed and flaking skin with all the moles and hairs brought into sharp contrast, and the leftover summer's tan yellowing me like dirty ivory. Got blood on my jacket, too, as if the violent femmes weren't enough. Without warning, it comes again. No pain this time, just a hot gush down my face as the pressure overwhelms whatever fragile membrane held it back. I slam my forehead into the paper towel dispenser in my hurry to reach the sink. That bleeds, too. In fact, all this bleeding is making me feel spacey enough that I sit down in the toilet seat with my head on the sink and I do nothing at all but wait. After a while, I'm not bleeding anymore and I get myself upright slowly like a person with a truly vile hangover. For some reason, I'm not using my left hand. I look at it and discover I'm holding my pen again in a, a bit of a death grip. I set it on the countertop before I can make it explode and begin the lengthy and awful process of 
cleaning myself up. The theater is called a black box because it's both of those things and nothing else. Its stage is bare but for a dead sapling planted in a bucket in a diffuse light coming down from the grid. I've been up there, up through the trap door in the booth. I spent a half hour unhooking Fresnel lights from the rack and handing them to people because I couldn't make myself edge out from the wall into the grid itself so far above the stage. If we had to hook our wrenches to our belts, I thought, why don't we have to hook ourselves to anything? My stomach lurches, what with the thought of the people on the grid and the others waiting in the wings, or maybe they'll be in the green room still, warming up their voices. Round and round the rugged rock the ragged rascal ran. <laughs> in the heat, the inside of my nose crackles. <sighs> everything that should be moist is parched, and everything that should be comfortably dry is soaked with rain. Jacket, trousers, converse, hair, book bag where I had doodled Ginevra's name in ballpoint across the white rubber toe cap of my shoe, there's nothing but a blue smear. The lights rise on Eve Morrow and Leslie Kuliak, both in bowler hats. Their faces, bare of paint, look tired and hollow and so much older than they did during lunch period. They're waiting at a crossroads, Reminds me of something. I try to remember it seems important. Their dialogue teases around the edges of it, whatever it is. Then I try to forget it because Ginevra takes the stage. Ginevra Iacovini. Her father owns Bleecker's only cab company. Her mother works part-time at Danny Lowe's selling fine leather. Between them, they've raised a changeling. All huge dark eyes and a face studded with piercings. She's taken those out for the show, and her face looks thinner and younger. She enters stage right, with her bowler flattening her cap of curls, a rope about her neck and a whip cracking at her ankles. The whip is in the hand of Tyra Cross. She makes Ginevra stop and start, and carry her things, and take the whip in her mouth, and give it back. Tyra speaks, and I watch Ginevra's silent lips. Think, Tyra commands. I almost miss Ginevra's first words. The excursus. Ginevra said it to me earlier, in the smoke hole, a bit of it. <clears throat> For reasons unknown, but time will tell, she said, and plunged in torment, plunged in fire, comes back to me now, and with it a warm metallic tickle in the passage of my throat. I lean my head back, pull my knees up to my chest. Above me the grid shows faintly, black on black behind the Fresnels. Below, Ginevra delivers a stream of words. My hand gropes in the pocket of my jean jacket and finds my pen and a water toilet paper. I blot my nose with one hand and clutch the pen with the other as if the pressure will help get this under control. 
Maybe it does. I swallow less each time. While below me, Ginevra's voice rises, and with it, the sound of a scuffle. She gasps and shouts and halts. So does the trickle of blood down my throat. I raise my head cautiously. Ginevra stands listless, lost and swaying. Her hat is wrecked. She returns to the stage again in the second act. I was afraid her part was over. She says nothing this time. Even her hair hangs lifeless about her cheeks. Her fall is inevitable. She's called Lucky. That's irony. If I forget again in English class what the definition of irony is, I'll only have to summon this image to my mind. Lucky. Slave to Pozzo. Most miserable of a miserable crew. When she's beaten, she whimpers once, and I think Leslie's given her a real kick with that steel-capped boot. The whimper reminds me of nothing, though. The desperate remembrance in my brain has gone quiet. The blood in my head flows in the usual channels. Does not start again until what turns out to be the very last scene. Eve and Leslie, alone together once more in the bleak light by the spare tree. As that light dims, I feel it all over. The familiarity. And with it, the blood. The applause ends. The rest of the audience rises, collects jackets and purses, files out. I stay in my seat, hands to my face until everyone's gone. I wake early the next day, Saturday. Dad'll be in bed for a couple hours still. I dress in my jean jacket and go for a walk. From our house, you can see bleaker spread below the lip of the escarpment. A pitiful little grid of Monopoly houses and patches of orchard. And beyond it, the highway. I walk the other direction, between bare fields and windbreaks. At a crossroads, a single tree. It reminds me of the one on the stage last night. No, that tree reminded me of this one. I stop walking and fumble in my pockets. Pen, bloody tissue, matches. My throat hurts. I light a cigarette. I remember something now. I come here often, on Saturdays. I wait here. Don't I? Uh, someone meets me at the crossroads, but who? How will I know it's the right person? Why don't I ever think of this when I'm elsewhere? Is it so terrible? Is it... Just so large. When I finished my cigarette, they come for me, and I remember everything. On Monday, I meet Ginevra in the graveyard after typing class. She's drawing, perched in the big tree up in the branches. Every tree is the one from the play, I think. Strangely familiar and awful and full of meaning that vanishes if you look at it directly. 
Ginevra closes her sketchbook and swings down when she sees me coming. We kick our way through the drifts of leaves that have gathered around all the stones. My mother's buried here on the far side. I haven't told Ginevra that, so I steer us the other way, out the north gate. I know a bridge, across a little creek that rushes down from the escarpment. The bridge is rusted, bits of it come away on my fingertips when I stroke the iron. We lean on the rail and watch the water trickling below us. Light rain begins to fall. So, Ginevra says. It was... I want to say it was amazing, because it was. But more than that, though. (laughs) She glances at me from behind the fall of her hair. You got it? (laughs) It got me, I think. I thought you'd get it. You always have that look. I turned to glance at her. You know, I used to see you by yourself, just leaning on the wall or something with your hands in your pockets. You used to see me? Sure I did. She takes a long drag and exhales slowly, deliciously into the autumnal air. The deep one, (laughs) we used to call you, me and Chris and Pete, back when we were wondering who you were. She had a name for me. I don't think it's about God, I blurt. I don't either, and I'm Catholic. I think... They're waiting for something. More personal, if that makes sense. More vital. More important. (laughs) We sound like Dee Dee and Go-Go. It gets in your brain a little bit. (laughs) She smiles ruefully and looks away. She's wearing her bowler hat from the play. An old white waffle weave shirt and a denim vest. Her lips were wine red earlier, but some of the colors come off on her cigarette. Her eyes flash wide and dark, like the eyes of an owl after sundown. I wish I could kiss her. Instead, I watch the water, which falls, and the leaves, which also fall, and the rain, which, uh, whatever. You're kind of a mess, she says. I guess. I look down at my shoes. The toe caps are smeared with ballpoint ink. And I thank the rain for smearing it before Ginevra could see what was written there. Ugh, might have been her name. Me too, she says quickly. All of us. There's so much we don't know. I know, I almost say. Just for a moment, it's it's all there. The cause of my troubles, the, the thing for which I wait, the, the meaning of the crossroads tree. But if I speak, something will burst in my head and I'll spill blood all over the rusted bridge and the place where our hands rest. I hold very still. The tide of blood recedes. And with it, 
the knowledge, all but the memory of forgetting and the sense that time is short. After her last inhalation, Ginevra drops the butt of her cigarette into the water. The tiny light hisses out. And then there's only the smoke from her lips. And welcome back. You know, sometimes it's the quiet ones that surprise us the most. The story's so subtle and elegant and full of ambiguity. That's frustrating for some, I'm sure, but for others, well, it's a different and refreshing corner of fantasy. You see, we come to the crossroads often, you and I. We, who are fans of the fantastic, we come in search of the fantastic. Mostly, we don't know what to expect. I like to think that if you listen to us every week at Podcastle, you don't know what to expect from us one week to the next. So, at the crossroads, a single tree. What's looming on the horizon for us? What is that now taking shape in the mist and fog of dawn? What's waiting for us? You tell me. Whatever it is, I love it, and I'll wait. Whoever it is, I'll embrace you and host you in my hall. So take another good long drag of that cigarette. Let the nicotine and smoke embrace the mist. I can't see what it is, but I know it's coming. It's coming for me and it's coming for you. And I think it's going to be fantastic. And once we encounter it, there's this chance that we might be made fantastic too. The good news is... We don't have to do it alone. So let's go to the crossroads together. Hold my hand. And we'll wait for whatever it is with each other. While we're waiting, let's talk about feedback. This week, as fate would have it, we're hitting another subtle bit of fantasy. Samantha Henderson's Everything You Were Looking For. Read by Wilson Fowley. About a man whose wife disappeared on a hiking trip many years ago and his quest to find her. Not a ton of feedback, but it was pretty unanimously positive. Infinite Monkey said, The best part of this story is the harrowing section where our narrator's wife falls into the cave. It's so well done, in fact, that it makes the listener forget the first part of the story, or we know he's been reunited with her. I like the setup of that. And Max said, This story struck a chord with me. I'm newly married and listening to this story. I felt the love that Paul and Melissa had for each other. I really felt it. When I finished this, I had to hurry home and give my wife a huge hug and just hold her for a few minutes. That is why we have literature, to touch us in ways we never thought were possible from mere words. Well, thank you very much for those comments. Let us know what you thought of this week's story by swinging by forum.escapeartist.net getting in on the discussion. Don't wait for that part. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and leaving us a donation. We heard that our one-time donation button was down for a little while, but that's been fixed. So feel free to throw some cash our way, or sign up as a subscriber. Every single cent goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcastle flying just out of reach of the mundane. Thank you. 
Well, that was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, thanks so much for hosting this week, Peter, Anna Schwend and myself. I want to thank you all for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in one week with a story of dignity and scars. Until then, this is Dave Thompson reminding you, it's not about God. See you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Carl Sagan said, Somewhere, something incredible is waiting to be known. Thanks for listening. <laughs>